Hi everyone, my name is Harris Laurie. I live in Boreham Wood in the UK and it's a real privilege to be presenting one of the chapters for 929 and especially one of my favourite chapters, Shemot Exodus 32. It's an action-packed chapter. It's very dramatic because the action continually cuts from what's happening at the foot of Mount Sinai to the top of Mount Sinai and back again and back again. So the chapter starts with the Jewish people becoming distressed when Moses has delayed in returning from his encounter with God at the top of the mountain. And they convince Aaron to construct a golden calf, which they praise in place of God. God informs Moses of the Jewish people's sin and then goes on to declare that he will destroy the entire nation, with the exception of Moses, who will become the father of a new nation. And at this point, Moses starts his argument with God and counters God's argument and says God shouldn't do this because, number one, the Egyptians will believe that God had bad intentions in bringing the Jewish people out of Egypt to end up killing them in the desert. And number two, God has already promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that he would bring the Israelites to the promised land. And so, again, he can't do what he's planning to do now. And based on these arguments of Moses, God changes his mind and relents. And for many of us, this idea seems strange, maybe heretical even. Surely God is unchanging and unaffected by human actions. But there you have it in the Torah itself. Moshe clearly gets God to actively change course. And the Hebrew word is Vayinachem. And he, God, reconsidered, or more technically, perhaps was moved to pity for the ill that would be caused to others. So Moses gets God to change his mind. Anyway, back to the story, and there's a lot more that still happens in the chapter. At this stage in the negotiation, things are interrupted by Moshe leaving Mount Sinai and confronting the Jewish people at the foot of the mountain. And he obviously sees them praying to the golden calf. So he famously shatters the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written and orders those who believe in God to kill lots of their fellow Israelites. Moses then returns to the mountain and negotiation then resumes. This time, Moses speaks first and beseeches God again not to destroy the Jewish people. This time, Moshe states, if you decide to kill the Jewish people, erase me from your book. Again, pretty, uh, pretty audacious stuff. God responds, only he who sinned against me will be erased from my book. So a partial success for Moses. God does then smite an unreported number of Jewish people, but the nation as a whole continues on its journey to the promised land. So this encounter between God and Moses has all the hallmarks of a classic piece of negotiation. And in fact, last year when I was studying for my MBA, I took a course on negotiations and negotiation theory, and I used this chapter as a case study in one of my papers. And I just wanted now to pick out a couple of great Midrashim, rabbinic interpretations of the dialogue between God and Moshe here, which go into more detail on negotiation techniques which Moses uses. The first is a piece of interpretation found in the Pesikta de Rab Kahana, Piska 16.9, and it reads as follows. In the name of Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Barachia told a parable. A king had a vineyard which he proceeded to turn over to a tenant. When the vineyard produced good wine, the king used to say, how good is the wine of my vineyard? When it produced bad wine, the king used to say, how bad is my tenant's wine? Whereupon the tenant said, my lord king, 
When the vineyard produces good wine, you say, how good is the wine of my vineyard? Yet when it produces bad wine, you say, how bad is the wine of my tenant? Yet, good or bad, the wine is yours. And what the Midrash is doing here is picking up on the subtle change of possessive pronouns, possessive pronouns, sorry, which occur in our verses. God starts by telling Moses, see what your people are doing. And Moses, by replying to him and saying, your people, basically is saying, sorry, God, they're your people as well. You have to take responsibility for them. They're not just mine. And so Moses, through this, subtly persuades God to reconcile himself with the fact that the Jewish people are, in fact, still his people. And that, therefore, um, persuades him, partly, to reconsider. The second is a piece of Midrash in Shemot Rabbah 43.5, which reads like this. Moses said, Lord of the universe, at Sinai you said, I am the Lord your God, in the singular, not your God in the plural. In brackets, I should say, this is a reference to the first commandment, right? The first of the Ten Commandments. The Midrash goes on, surely you spoke to me, but did you speak to them? And have I actually broken the command? That's the end of the Midrash. And this is quite a remarkable piece of argumentation, because basically Moses is protesting that the Jewish people cannot be punished for breaking the second of the Ten Commandments, forbidding idolatry, because the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, is phrased as your God in the singular. So in Hebrew, the pronoun is a singular you rather than the plural you. And therefore, Moses argues that the Jewish people weren't being addressed actually at all in the Ten Commandments. And so they can't be blamed for breaking the second because it was only Moses who was addressed and he didn't break the second. And God goes on to accept Moses' argument here, which again is quite remarkable because this almost feels like a little piece of rabbinic fun in some sense. They're taking um, the interpretation so far, you know, it can't really mean that uh, from the verses really, surely. But yet on a technicality, Moses is arguing the Jewish people out of trouble. So in summary, I think this is quite radical. Both the Midrashim are presenting God and Moses as intellectual equals. And in fact, Moses comes out on top. And what we can take from this, I think, is that the divine will can be swayed by human effort, i.e. we can make a difference to God. For both Moses in, in this encounter, and also if we think about Abraham with Saddam back in Bereshit, arguing with God is key. For two of our most heroic biblical personalities, an important paradigm for their relationship with God is protest at and active challenge of perceived injustice. And I think there's a lot in this that we can resonate, that can resonate with us today. Have an awesome day, everyone.